The first reading this morning is Psalm 72. I don't think there are any Bibles in the pew, so I won't give you the number. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. He will be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him, and all nations will serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy, and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Let corn abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvellous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Then the second reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 1, the visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler, who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. 
He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Andy, very much. Uh, Read with great clarity those two passages. Those two passages belong very closely together. The first one from Psalm 72 was understood uh, very soon in the history of the church to be prophetic and to be uh, an illustration of the coming of the Magi uh, to worship Jesus. And that's a fundamental reason why so commonly we talk about them as the kings. Uh, we borrowed that language from Psalm 72, uh, although in Matthew, um, can we deal with that buzzing, that humming? Uh, although in Matthew, they're referred always uh, as magi. So, but it's, it's a lovely passage that speaks really of the, uh, of the, the kingship of Jesus, his lordship, and the, the blessing that's going to flow from that and uh, illustrates the the story of the Magi. I'd like to thank uh, Tim also for leading us uh, uh, truly into God's presence as we prayed for ourselves, the church, and and the world. Uh, This is, as we have repeatedly said through all our services, and I have found it to be so this year as much or more than ever, the sheer busyness and the sheer requirements and demands of this season get in the way of what it's really about. And I think many of us have a a deep longing in our hearts just for somewhere in all this, for a space, a place, where we can be reflective, where we can be attentive, where we can, uh, like the shepherds or like the magi, come before Christ, be in his presence. I think we all have a longing for that and know that um, we can miss it, we can lose it at this time. And what I'd like to do this, this morning is to reflect a little on that story of the Magi, and maybe in this service, as Tim and then Andy have uh, led us, um, that we will find such a moment that together here it will be a moment of presence, of being in the presence of Christ where that longing we all have is is realized for a time. And perhaps also to give some suggestions and some ideas as to how we can make that so in in the days that are ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful season. We recognize that lots of good things can get in the way of our heart's desire to come into your presence to be present before the Christ child and to offer something of our lives to him. 
uh, we pray for your help and grace this morning and in the days ahead. Amen. Back in October, I went to London on a Saturday morning to attend a conference, uh, a day-long conference to which I'd been looking forward for some time. And I duly arrived at the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies in the center of London to find nobody was there. I was a week late. Um, not actually the first time, or probably the last time that that will happen. So there I was in London on a Saturday morning with a return ticket um, and no, nothing else in my diary. Well, it was in my diary, it wasn't in my, um, but it wasn't in reality. Uh, what was I going to do? On the train coming up to London, I'd been reading the newspaper and there was a long uh, review in there of a new exhibition at the British Museum about the Ming Dynasty of China, 15th, 16th century. And it was commending this as a, a wonderful exhibition and that people should go and see it. So I was in Russell Square, the British Museum is just around the corner, so I said, I'll go. And I was there early in the morning, there was virtually no one else, and unusual for these exhibitions, which are usually crammed, sweaty occasions, uh, I had, there were just very few of us. I had the whole place to myself, virtually. And it was wonderful. I think it's still on, do go. It was, it was, it was truly lovely. However, the very last item on the catalogue was the adoration of the Magi. And I thought, what on earth is this about? How on earth um, does that come into a, an exhibition about the Ming Dynasty in the 16th century? And I held my, well, a lot of you know I have a fascination with this story and it doesn't take much to get me going. So I was interested in this, in this matter. And this morning, I'd just like to reflect with you on this picture because it was the last item in the exhibition, and it is so eloquent. It is so eloquent of what this season is about and what that story is about. Here's the, the picture. Um, I'm sure I've seen it before. You may have seen it before. Um, I wasn't particularly familiar with it. It's by uh, a painter of... Uh, an Italian painter called Andreas Mantegna and was painted pretty well in the year 1500. And as you can see, it's a picture of the uh, Magi gathering before Christ to worship him. There are a num number of very striking and startling things about this picture. The first is this is one of the very earliest um, uh, paintings we have that deliberately has what you what today we call a telephoto effect no cameras in the 16th century obviously um, but Montaigne was one of the very first artists to realize that you could in a sense foreshorten things and you could draw people right into a picture by what we'd now call a, a telephoto effect this is not the first he'd experimented with it before but this is his most dramatic and successful use of it. And so in this picture, instead of the grand panorama that you get in many pictures of the Magi with you know, the stable and everyone and retinues and a great panorama, in this one you have a sense of everything being crowded into this tiny little frame. It's not a particularly big painting. And when you see it, 
you have a strong desire, a really strong physical desire, to come and stand up really close to it. And what the artist is saying here is, step into this picture. Instead of standing back and saying, let me look at this, you actually want to step forward and step into the picture. And what the artist is saying is, this scene you are invited to. You can step into this picture as the fourth magi. You can be there in worship and in bringing your gifts. It's a very powerful thing, actually, when, when you're there. Uh, the sense of being drawn right up close and into the circle. There's a space waiting for you right at the front there. Let's uh, think a little bit about the three magi figures here because they're very illuminative also of this story. Three of them in the traditional uh, understanding. We don't know how many there were, but here are the traditional three. And they represent the three continents known to the world at that time. The old man in the lower right-hand corner represents Europe. Um, wise and elderly. And behind him uh, is a figure representing Asia, the Asian peoples, and to the right, uh, an African figure. Now that's become quite customary in, uh, in our Christmas cards for the third wise man to be shown as an African. This is one of the very first occasions on which one of the wise men is portrayed as African. The earliest is actually by the same artist some years earlier. Um, and we'll come to that in just a moment. Now, what the artist is saying here, and actually it's entirely what scripture says, what the story itself is implying, and what that passage from Psalm 72 is saying. We have here men, but representing the human race in its whole diversity, Europe, Asia and Africa. You also have people representing the three ages of humanity. A very elderly man, a man in middle life, in full vigor, and a, and a young man. And part of the really important meaning of this story, startling in its time, is that this child, this Christ child, this one who is Emmanuel, God with us, which is the language of chapter one of Matthew, he is the one who fulfills the dreams and longings of all humanity. And all are welcome, and all are invited. The Europeans, the Asians, the Africans, the whole of the human race, and people of all ages and generations are invited as well, young or old. The scripture is radical on this point, and, so, and this painting faithfully picks that up. And we need to hear that. None of us, and none around us, are excluded from the invitation to come into the presence of Christ, to be there, and to worship. I want to say something else about these three figures. The European one, perhaps, is not very surprising. That was where the church was strongest at that time, and. Mantegna, of course, himself as an Italian, was, uh, was a European. The Asian figure is a Turk. Now, the Turks had conquered Constantinople 
the Christian capital of the Eastern Empire just 50 years earlier, and were still, and would for another 150 years, be pressing into Europe, conquering Greece, conquering the Balkans, trying to reach eventually even Vienna. They were Europe's sworn foes at that time. They were Muslim, and they were expansionist, they were imperialistic, and they were the great threat. Here, at the height of European fear, anxiety, hostility to the Turkish Empire, one of the Magi is portrayed as just that. This was painted 1500. The fall of Constantinople was 1453, less than 50 years. It is as if today we were painting a picture of this scene, and in there we placed an ISIS fighter or a Boko Haram figure from Nigeria. It's a really unsettling and dangerous intrusion into this picture. I think the artist's instinct is theologically and biblically exactly right. This child is one who invites everyone, and he is the, the source of reconciliation and new life for everyone, however feared they may be, however hostile to, to us and our world. It's extraordinary to see him there. And the uh, incense burner that he holds in his hand, you can see in the big market in Istanbul to this day. I mean, it's a very characteristic Turkish thing. The African, as I said, I think Mantegna was the first artist to bring an African into the representation of this scene. Where, where did they come from in his day? Well, following the Black Death in the 14th century, there'd been a huge uh, shortage of labor in Europe. And as a result of that, there was an upswing in the slave trade, particularly bringing black African slaves to work in Europe. So who was the model for this? Probably a black African slave in Italy that Mantegna knew. So just, let's just pause a moment. Let's take this on board. This, this picture is wonderful and unsettling. It's profoundly about the gospel. The artist has really taken to heart crucial things here. An elderly European in his, in his wisdom, whatever. But perhaps the end of a story, the other figures represent the hostilities and fears, the ugliness of slavery, and yet they are being drawn into this circle the same circle into which we are being drawn. Let's give ourselves half a minute just to absorb that for a moment. It's, it's wonderful and unsettling. And I just invite you to just give it a bit of space. So that's the wise men for the moment. Let's come to their gifts now, and this is where uh, its presence in this exhibition in the British Museum comes in. Start at the front with uh, 
the oldest wise man, the oldest magi. He is offering gold, the first of the gifts. It is contained in an utterly priceless Ming vase. That's why it's in the, in the exhibition. And it's the very first representation in European art of uh, porcelain or other treasures from China. At that time, the art of making porcelain was unknown in Europe, and items like this were incredibly rare and incredibly precious. Some items reaching Egypt, and this item probably somehow brought from Egypt to Italy. You can hardly see the gold inside. It's, you can see it's there. But what is really precious is the container in this case. One of the most precious things in all the world, a little Ming vase, painted exquisitely. In the exhibition, they had next to it uh, an actual example, not identical, but very, very similar. And Mantegna has painted it, it there. The gold is the most precious thing that Earth affords, but it is contained in something even more precious. The preciousness of the gift is being emphasized. The incense burner, as I say, is something that you can buy for yourself in Istanbul today. The container of the myrrh with the African in the background, the container there, we don't know anything about what it might have been or what its history is. What do these gifts mean? What are they about? Traditionally, they have spoken of uh, being symbolic, they have understood to be symbolic of Christ as king and as priest and as the one who will die, who will lay down his life for his people. Gold for the king, incense for the priest, myrrh representing the death of, the, uh, of Christ later. There's great richness in reflection on that. Modern commentators tend to take a slightly different line and tend to suggest that the three gifts are all gifts for a king and that it is the kingship, it's the royal line of, uh, of Jesus that is being emphasized here. These strange, these strange men from beyond the fringes of civilized society uh, are, are recognizing Christ as king, king of all the earth. And the other meaning which, uh, which makes a wonderful um, partner with this is they are also bringing the tools of their trade. These are the things that magi, sorcerers, astrologers, uh, ritualists in the strange mystery religions of Persia. These are the things they use day by day in their, in their ceremonies and in their superstitions, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I find those two things together very, very powerful, that on the one hand, they are gifts to the true king. Herod is out there pretending to be king. Here is the true king, and they bring their most precious things. And they also bring the tools of their trade. Now, the tools of our trade can be many different things. They may be the physical um, tools that we work with, or the intellectual uh, skills that we use day by day, or the strength of our hands, or the whatever it may be, the professional skills, whatever our, 
the tools of our trade are. What perhaps is happening here is that they are bringing them to the Messiah. They are bringing them to the Christ, and they need to be sanctified. They need to be made holy because they have been used in corrupt religious arts and so on. They need to be sanctified. They need to be holy. I find that a very powerful thing for my own reflection. I commend it to you as well. Whatever are the tools of your trade, this Christmas, can you offer them? Can you bring them into the presence of Christ for them to be sanctified and used for his glory for the one who is the true king? Let's pause there just for a moment. Just engage with that. So we've reflected on the Magi, we've reflected on their gifts. Let's just turn our attention to the child now in this painting. There he is at the center, the baby Jesus, the Christ child, in the arms of Mary, almost being offered up. This is how you offer things in worship, isn't it? Almost being held there for their worship and adoration. It was traditional at that time in paintings to show the Christ child wrapped in the, what we, in the old Bible translation, we called swaddling clothes. Remember that phrase? Which are the bands that were put round babies in the ancient times, wrapped up in bands. And uh, almost universally in such works of art, you'll see the baby wrapped up in that kind of way, reminding us that this is truly a baby newly entered into the world, still in the, uh, the way that newborn babies were, were dressed and, and kept warm, speaking of the one who was born as a baby, the one who is God with us, the one who is uh, incarnate, taking flesh amongst us. Many artists, and Mantegna does the same here, realize that when you wrap a, body, uh, a baby like that, it also is very similar to the way you wrap a corpse. And so in many art, uh, works of art, and this is one of them, you have both that sense that this baby is being wrapped as you wrap all babies, but also there is a hint of the crucifixion and the death to come, that this is the one born to die. And you have that emphasis here. But our artist here does something else which is really extraordinary because not only are they the, the birth wraps of a tiny baby, and not only is it the the, the cloths in which a, a, a dead body is wrapped, he also wears it like a toga. Can you see that? He also wears it as uh, a garment of authority. The toga in Roman society was you know, for senators and, and the, the top ranks of leadership. This is the king. He is wrapped in swaddling bands as a baby. He is wrapped in grave clothes, speaking of him as the savior. He also wears it with the regal authority of, of a toga and as a king. 
this is the one who is held up for the Magi to, to worship and adore. More than that, look at his right hand. It's just sort of thrown out like a baby might throw out a, a hand, but it's actually folded in the form of an ancient blessing. The two fingers folded and the hand like that. He is blessing them as well. What a picture of adoration. What a picture of worship. What a picture of what happens when a Christian man or woman finds himself drawn into that place of worship. Here is the one who is the incarnate Lord. He is the one who entered our world as helpless baby. He is the one who will lay down his life for us on the cross. And he is the one who is earth's true Lord and our true king. And he is the one who comes into the world to bless as Mike and Beck say so often here, he is for us, not against us. He is the one who blesses. Let's just pause there a moment. My prayer for myself this Christmas and my prayer for all of us is that not that we will turn aside from all the, uh, all the good things that are part of this season, but that we will just keep alive that hunger in our hearts to find that place of stillness somewhere in the midst of it, that place where the real significance of this, of this event can come home to us where we can, as Mantegna invites us, step into the circle and find ourselves in that place of presence and worship. And where we will find that we are able to bring what's most precious, most fundamental and important for us, to his feet. The tools of our trade, perhaps. And we will find ourselves in the presence of one who is God with us, the baby sharing our life as the saviour who lays down his life for us and the king who blesses us. May God give each of us the time of mind and heart, the hunger to make it possible to find that place this Christmas.